The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good evening, Wednesday nighters. How are we, how are we doing, guys? All right, good time of worship. Man, whew. gotta love that. Welcome, guys. Uh, we just wanted to keep it fresh, so we turned directions on you guys. Hopefully that doesn't quench the spirit too much. If you're uh, used to being, what is that, east, now you're south, whatever. Um, let's pray, guys. We're going get, to get right to work. Uh, I'm actually going to ask you guys to do something different uh, just right now. Rather than, uh, rather than just pray for myself, I'm going to ask you guys to pray for me. So if you would take uh, 20 seconds and just on your own, just would you pray uh, God, that God would speak through me? Uh, more specifically, would you pray that God would open your hearts to hear the truth um, and, and that God would speak to you directly, um, even in spite of me? So would you, would you do that? Would you pray for me? 20 seconds, I'll close it out, and then we'll get to work. Father in heaven, I am overwhelmed with inadequacy tonight. God, I um, can't pretend to get up here and speak on these things as though I've done them or as though I have them perfected. God, but I thank you that I'm not up here to talk about me at all. I'm up here to talk about you. And though I am flawed, and though I'm a hypocrite and a sinner and a fake, God, that you are perfect and true and honorable in every way that you are a God that is worth showing off. So I pray, Lord, as we look to your word to reveal eternal truth to our hearts, that it would cause us to fall more and more deeply in love with you. And God, may the waters of your word run down our hearts and our minds and bring refreshment and joy and peace to the darkest and deepest and driest parts of our lives. God, may we find peace in the realization that you are God and we are not. May we find joy in the realization that we are broken, but you are perfect, and that you are a healer. So God, would you speak this word prophetically? Would your presence be manifest in this place? We beg of you, God, in Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter four, if you guys have your Bibles, you can flip there give you kind of a overview of what happens there. Once again, we find uh, a powerful, strong voice emerging from the Sea of Galilee. Um, Jesus spent most of his time in ministry around the Sea of Galilee. And when you picture the Sea of Galilee in your head, don't picture a sea, because you would be mistaken if you did that. It's, it's not really a sea, it's actually a lake. Uh, it's about the size, maybe a little bigger than uh, even Immigrant Lake or Applegate Lake. Uh, you can see across to the other side. Crazy wind can sweep through, but it's still a lake. And as you picture that lake, picture blue, clear water, sweet water, sweet water that probably back then you could drink. Surrounded by hills, and then behind that is basically desert. 
in the Middle East in Israel. Jesus spent the majority of his time preaching around this lake in Galilee. It was sort of the area that he was from. It was a poor area. It was an area filled with farmers, filled with fishermen, filled with common people. And in our story in Mark chapter 4, it it zooms in on Jesus teaching beside the waters of the Sea of Galilee. And just like what would always happen whenever Jesus would begin to open his mouth and, and the declaration and the proclamation of God would come out of his mouth, it would draw a crowd like magnet, people would swarm to Jesus because he didn't teach like other rabbis, he taught as though one that had authority. He didn't quote rabbis, he spoke as though he was the source of truth. And so, just like so many other times, people are crowding in around Jesus to hear what he has to say, eager to hear the truth of what he might say, eager to hear uh, what he might proclaim, or maybe to see a healing or see his power manifest in some way, and people crowd around him. And and, it's so much so that, like in other stories we've talked about, Jesus gets into a boat and actually pushes off the shore just so that he can uh, be seen in the crowd, just so that he can magnify what he's saying over the water, sort of like a microphone system. And in this particular case, Jesus has something very specific that he wants to reveal uh, to this crowd. No doubt this crowd had probably heard him teach before, therefore they'd heard him say the truth before. They'd heard his message before. And now Jesus has something a little different that he wants to zoom in on. So what Jesus says, if you look at it, in verse 1 of chapter 4, again he began to teach beside the sea, a.k.a. lake. A very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat it on the sea and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things and parables and in his teaching, he said to them, listen, a sower went out to sow. Okay, pause there. Now Jesus is the storyteller of all storytellers and and he's the communicator of all communicators. And what communicators do best is when they know their audience, okay? And they speak to their audience using the terminology and and contextualizing so the audience can understand. So Jesus knows that he's speaking to farmers and fishermen and he's speaking to common folk that work middle-class jobs. So he uses illustrations that, that pull from that, things that they would see every day. And so he, he uses the illustration of a farmer, uh, someone that goes out to sow seed. Verse four, and he, as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into the good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus paints this picture as the master storyteller of this farmer that goes out to sow seed. And as he's sowing seed, he he gives four different um, illustrations of what could happen to that seed. The first one, he says, some seed actually didn't even make it to where it was intended to go. It it fell as as the farmer was walking to sow along the wayside. It fell, and as it fell, the birds of the air came and and snatched it up, right? And then he said some more seed later on fell, and and it didn't go where it was supposed to go either. It fell into thorns and thistles and, and weeds, and even though it began to grow and it seemed healthy at first, it got choked out by those thorns and those those. See, I would encourage you guys to go back and read this because Jesus actually tells what all of these things are. It's really cool, but we're going to focus in on one of them. There's one of these seeds that scares me more than any other one. (laughs) 
The third seed, Jesus says, not the one that got choked out and not the one that got eaten by the birds, but there's another seed, and that seed seemingly fell on good soil. It looked at first like it was where it belonged, like it was where it was supposed to be. It fell into what looked like dirt and immediately sprang up and then life began to bud out of the seed and roots began to shoot out. But something was wrong. If you guys remember the story, something was wrong. See, in Israel, not always when there is dirt is there actually dirt, okay? What was really there was stone and rock, and some dirt had gotten pushed over or blown over at some point to where it looked like soil, but the reality was the seed was not planted in deep soil, it was planted in shallow soil. And so what happened is as the weed, or as the the roots began to come out and try to sink in and find depth and and sink down and find nutrition to, to grow the plant, it couldn't because it hit rock. And then the sun, when the sun began to came, come out, the sun that, that, that should give life to a plant actually baked the plant and it died. Okay, why is that scary? It's scary because it looked so promising. It's scary because it seemed like the seed was gonna be fine, but what you didn't see what was below the surface. And what you didn't see was that shallowness of soil that actually was the death of it. And then Jesus goes on to tell of the fourth seed, which of course falls into good soil where the roots can sink deep down in and it lives and it flourishes and the sun causes it to grow. Now what's interesting about this parable is that it's not necessarily about the seed. Okay? Now the seed, Jesus goes on to say the seed is truth. That's the word of God. Okay? The word of God is, is cast and, and given and preached and proclaimed to different people. And it's ultimately the truth at some point, even as Romans says, is proclaimed to everyone, even through creation. Everyone gets a chance to know and understand the truth of God, but everyone receives that truth differently. Some people it gets choked out by the cares of the world. Some people get snatched up by the bird. But this specific one can't grow because the soil is so shallow. It's so shallow. So the question at hand that Jesus is essentially seeming to to, to pose to this crowd is what kind of soil are you, right? What kind of soil are you? Are you the soil that when you heard the truth of God, it immediately sprung up and you got excited about it? The good news of the gospel sparked something in you and at first it was going good, but then as time went on, you had no depth and the roots couldn't sink in, and life couldn't come to your faith and your walk with God. The question Jesus is asking here is, what would you do with the truth that has been given to you? And even more so, the question really is, what level will you allow the truth of God to penetrate your heart? How deep are you willing to let that seed that God has given you go into your heart? How deep are you willing? to let it go. That's the question that Jesus, who knows every, crowd, every person in the crowd, knows exactly what they've heard and what they know. He knew that what they needed to hear was the second question, not just do you know the truth. That's what we talked about last week, right? The truth and the importance of the truth. But the second question is, how willing are you to let that truth affect you? How willing are you to let that seed sink into the deeper parts of your heart? Or will it sit shallow where the sun will bake it out? In Luke chapter 6, Jesus tells another parable somewhat similar. He says this, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? 
He says, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. What Jesus is saying here is that everyone who comes to him and says, I'm willing for you to take hold of my life is like someone that built a house by digging deep the foundation and building that house on bedrock so that when that storm comes, it can't blow it over. Unlike the next house that he explains, which is built on the sand. You guys have heard this before. What Jesus is talking about is depth. He's talking about depth. He's talking about allowing a truth to really sit in a part of your heart that it will not just randomly or accidentally go to a part that takes intentionality, a part that takes discipline. And if we do not allow the truth of God to sink to that level in our heart, the sun, the trials, the things in life will ultimately scorch that out. So tonight is kind of, if you will, a part two to last week. Last week we talked about Bible reading. We're in a spiritual discipline series. Uh, and really the whole point of this is not to, to get to God. Okay, we don't do spiritual disciplines to get to God. We, we do spiritual disciplines that we might know God better. Okay, we talked about that in week one. It's the discipline of of doing whatever it takes to be with God and know God, but not to get to God in a salvation sense, right? So that's why we're doing this series. It's kind of timely. It's the beginning of January. Everyone's trying to get habits going. And I have to just confess to you guys, this series is wrecking me, okay? I I seriously, like, because I don't do these things well. And I'm supposed to get up here and teach you guys how to do these things. And it's really funny because I don't do them well. So we're all in the same boat tonight. Uh, We're going to be all in the same boat for the next eight more weeks as we talk about these practices and these disciplines that none of us are probably doing, Um, but that's okay, okay, because I'm not Jesus, praise the Lord, Uh, and and Jesus is Jesus, and he's going to hopefully just help us uh, learn how to be more discipled Christians, but tonight, we're going to do sort of the part two to Bible study, and that is the discipline of meditation, okay, isn't that just a weird word? I mean, instantly, doesn't your mind just go to like yoga mats and, uh, you know, some kind of like, what are those big gong things that you hit with? It's a gong. I guess that's what it's called. Uh, the gong, you know. Um, I was going to dress up in like, what do the monks wear? You know, the, the monk thing. And we could, you know, okay. Um, it's, just, it's one of those things that when you hear Christian meditation, it just seems a little weird. Uh, wait a minute, isn't that like an Eastern religion thing? Well, it, it is. And we'll, we'll get into that. It's not an Eastern religion thing, but we'll get into why, why it's weird. Here's the thing, okay, I want to start, first of all, tonight, as we, we, we try to understand meditation, I want to start by looking at why it's so hard and why it's so weird, and really why it's so important. Okay, our culture is obsessed with mindlessness. Did you know that? It's obsessed with mindlessness. We are, so much of what we do is, is mindless stuff. Now, the problem in our culture isn't necessarily that we don't think at all. We actually think quite a bit, but we think about things that don't matter, Does that make sense? And not only is it that we think about things that don't matter, it's also that we don't think about the things that really matter. We fill our minds with things that don't matter and don't fill our minds with things that really matter, and we're really good at it. In fact, we've built billion-dollar industries centered around mindless living and mindless life. First of all, our life is bombarded, bombarded with unintentional distractions, okay? Unintentional distractions are all the things that constantly bring mindlessness and, and keep you from being able to focus on anything for any amount of time, okay? Here's, here's a little uh, step into my brain. So 
I find myself, as I was thinking about this this week, I find myself thinking about things constantly by default that just do not matter. That just don't matter. My mind is default set and default wired to just think about stuff that's pointless, okay? Here's, here's things I think about. This is embarrassing. I'm hungry, okay? <laughs> you guys think about that like 10 times a day? Uh, what time is it? I'm bored. I wonder what the weather will be like um, tomorrow. I wonder who's winning in the election polls. Uh, I wonder what I'm doing after work. I hate this song. I should skip it. Uh, what's on YouTube? I'm going to find something entertaining. Um, that guy looks funny. I wonder why. I wonder if that person's mad at me. I mean, these are the things that fill my mind, right? And they sound ridiculous, but you guys think the same things, okay? <laughs> it's just ridiculous things that fill my mind constantly. And that's, that's normal, right? But we're bombarded not only with our own unintentional distractions, but we're also bombarded with external unintentional distractions. Our world is distracting, is it not? It is the most distracting world ever right now. Uh, commercials, are distracting, constantly just nagging in your ear. Text messages are the most distracting thing ever. Uh, can't get through a conversation with anyone without someone having to check their phone. Uh, we're distracted by email alerts. We're distracted by ads. We're distra- just so many things constantly bombarding our focus and, and leading to mindlessness. Everything in the commercial world is strategically designed to buy your attention, to win your attention, okay? Every ad, every commercial, every billboard, everything is strategically designed to take your attention from whatever it's on and put it on that thing. They're genius at it, okay? And those are just the unintentional distractions. We also are experts at filling our lives with intentional distractions. These are the things that we choose to insert into our lives to make them very mindless, okay? We're, we're very good at that, um, we uh, use a lot of phrases in our millennial culture like checking out, like I just want to check out. Um, I want to unplug, okay, unplug my brain. Uh, I want to kill time. I want to pass time. Uh, we, we're constantly trying to unplug our brains, especially after work when we're tired. We don't want to think about anything. We just put something on that's going to check my brain out. Maybe it's just me. You guys are looking at me like I'm funny. So, but I like to check out, okay, screensaver, turn it on. Here's an example. Um, when was the last time you sat in a restaurant waiting for someone to show up and you didn't pull your phone out? Seriously. I mean, no one's ever alone anymore. Like, no one knows how to just simply sit and say, I'm going to take five minutes and actually think about something. <laughs> no, we don't do that because we don't have to. We have a phone that will think for us. Uh, we don't actually have to, to, to sit and entertain ourselves in our brain anymore uh, or we're even people watch because we can just simply check the news or check our social media. Um, I cannot sit waiting for someone to come into a meeting without pulling out my phone uh, and entertaining myself. Uh, you can't drive in the car without having music or talk radio, or something, keeping your attention. We can't even just drive and enjoy a drive without somehow pumping mindless things into our head. First thing we do when we get home is typically turn on the television, okay? Um, Not demonizing these things, just saying. Um, Most of us fall asleep during, uh, sorry, most of us fall asleep watching TV screens, you know? Like that's just become normal. We just fall asleep watching, watching a movie or watching TV or whatever it is. Uh, the U.S. Chamber Foundations did a study on millennials. I found this today, on, today online. It was really interesting. Uh, it said that, that uh, and this is a no-duh, right, that we are the most multitasking generation in history. Okay, did you guys know that? Uh, shocker, okay. We are multitaskers. So when high schoolers do homework now, they don't just do homework like they used to. They do homework while eating a bowl of cereal, while texting their friend and uploading pictures to Instagram, playing video games with the TV on in the background and music. 
okay? That's, and I'm not even exaggerating. Like, this is, this is the generation that we live in. And it's seeped into the older generation, too. We're all multitaskers. We do so many things at once. Now, what the evolutionists have tried to say is, like, oh, well, we're actually developing as a species, and we're able to do more things because our brain capacity is expanded. Totally not true. Uh, multitasking is actually a myth. Did you know that? Um, you can't actually do two things at once. Now, your, your, your brain, like we'll talk about it in a little bit, but your brain has the ability to do things without thinking about like breathing and things like that. But as far as the, the parts of your brain that actually process information, you can't do two things at once. So what you're really doing is you're going from one thing to another really fast. Fast enough that it seems like you're multitasking. But the reality is, and what they found is, shocker, is that when someone is doing six things at once, they're actually doing all six things poorly. Yeah? Interesting. Okay. So what's funny is, is in our culture, we have become so used to doing so many different things, and what we're really doing is we're just splitting our mind into six different places and doing none of them well. We've forgotten how to focus on something. We've forgotten how to give our attention even to another human being. Isn't that weird? I mean, we just don't know how to do it anymore. We've become so used to splitting our brain into so many different places. Now, the problem isn't necessarily just entertainment, okay? It's not like, oh, Hollywood's evil and all this stuff, I mean, yeah, it is. But, you know, th- that's, not the, that's not the issue. The problem is the mindlessness. The problem is the weightless things. It's not that we're not thinking. It's not that we're not putting things into our brain. It's that we're putting things in our brain that just don't matter. They just don't matter. We watch shows, and I love cooking shows, and I love all these shows, but we watch shows about all these things that don't really matter about remodeling houses and about cooking and cooking shows and weight loss shows and relationship shows and shows about murder. What is this one everyone watching right now? It's to find a murder. What is it called? I don't know. Yeah, everyone's watching it. Whatever. We watch these things and they're, and they're good. I mean, I like watching these shows too, but they're mindless, right? They don't challenge you to think about anything other than mindless stuff. And that's why we like them. That's why we like them. Now, I'm, let me just let me say, okay, I'm not urging that we go get our yoga mats, find a hill in Tibet, ring a little bell, and sit there with no distractions. I'm not saying we should do that, okay? Uh, that's, that's Hinduism, okay, or Buddhism, whatever. Um, that's not what I'm trying to say, but what I am saying is we need to think about this because as the church, there are disciplines that we are called to do, and, and, and I would even go so far as to say designed to do, and our culture is making them extremely hard, and as I'm diving into these things, I'm realizing, why is this so hard? Meditation, why is it so hard for me to sit and think about one thing for five minutes? And I'm not blaming my culture. I mean, I could blame, you know, ADD or something. But ultimately, a lot of it is because of our culture and the way that we've designed our lives. We have made our lives so packed full. We're so overstimulated. It takes so much to keep us entertained that we cannot just sit and think about one thing for five minutes. At least I can. It's really crazy. Now, why do we love shallow things? What's the core behind this? Why do we love shallow things? I would say, I would answer that question in one word, and that is what I would call escapism. Okay, the reason I think we're so prone to shallow and meaningless things that we ingest into our our mind all day long is because of escapism. It's because the reality is, is we don't want to think about things. Okay, we don't want to think about the reality of our life. The reality of our life is sometimes a really tough pill to swallow. I don't like my job. I like my job. I'm just, hypothetically. Um, <laughs> I love my job. I love you guys. It's a great job. Um, you know, you're, you're thinking to yourself, I, I don't like my job. I don't like what I get paid. Uh, I, I don't like the way my kids treat me. I don't like my relationship with my wife right now. It's horrible. And so I don't want to think about any of that stuff. So 
let's turn on something mindless and let's check out, right? It's an escape. It's I don't want to think about those things. I don't want to have to be faced with dealing with those things. So let's just turn something on or do something that gives me mindless checkout time, unplugged time. Not only that, we don't want to think about eternal realities. I don't want to think about heaven and what, whether, whether I'm going to end up where I'd like to go or not or what, what eternal implications my life might have. I don't want to think about any of that, so I'm going to unplug my brain. Think about things that don't matter, shallow things. We don't like facing the facts about the world that we live in and the stuff going on. The fact that ISIS is scary and they're doing crazy stuff. The fact that our economy has problems. The, the fact of uh, how crazily different our, our country could go depending on who gets elected. We don't want to think about that stuff, so let's turn on something mindless. Let's check out. Let's laugh at a YouTube video and move on with life, right? Now, here's an example of why we do this. Um, and I know I talk, I talk about this a lot, but it's a good example. Why does my body crave carbs? Why do I want pizza? Like, if you were to sit me down, okay, and you guys are all the same way, uh, if, if you were to sit me down and put a, a, a pizza in front of me with pepperoni and sausage and good stuff, and then you put a, a chicken salad in front of me, which one would I pick? I mean, I'm going to pick the pizza, right? Um, if I got a both, that'd be great. But the pizza is what I'm going to pick. Now, why does my body want that? Because technically speaking, that pizza has absolutely nothing, really, that, that is good for me. It's chock full of grease, it's processed carbs, it's processed meats, it's processed cheese. Like, why, do, why does my body want something that's so bad for it, rather than a salad that would actually have protein and all the things that I need for energy to get through the day? Well, here's why. It's, it's because carbs, and, and I'm, not, I'm not a nutritionist or whatever, so if I'm wrong on this, just give me grace. But carbs, as far as I understand it, carbs spike your blood sugar level. So when you first eat bread or processed bread of some, some sort, it gives you like this burst of kind of initial energy. It makes you feel really good. And your body knows that. So your body craves what's going to give it the most energy first. The problem is, if, I had Mexican food for lunch, so I know this. The problem is 10 minutes after ingesting processed carbs into your belly, you're ready for a nap, right? I mean, it's nap time. That's siesta, okay? Um, so your body wants it because it's the quickest, fastest source of sugar, which is going to spike your blood sugar and give you energy. Doesn't want the salad, even though the salad would give you energy all day long, give you nutrition and vitamins and all those things. <clears throat> okay, what does it have to do with meditation? Here's the thing. Our minds do the same thing. We want whatever is going to alleviate the pressure of life. We want whatever is going to be able to let us just zone out <clears throat> things we don't want to deal with. And we want whatever's going to give us that the fastest. And only that, but we've trained our minds to want those things and prefer those things. Okay, we've trained our minds to rather watch a funny video on YouTube for, for a minute or whatever our favorite show is rather than sit down for even 20 minutes in the Word. I mean, 20 minutes doesn't seem like a lot, but I, I'm guessing if we took a poll in this room, most of us don't even spend 20 minutes in the Scriptures. It's hard to spend 20 minutes in the Scriptures, but it's not hard to watch a show for half an hour. And it's because we've trained our minds to want the carbs, if you will, of our minds. We want something that's just going to make me feel good really instantly. Even though spending time in the Word, meditating on God and who He is is so much more healthy, we don't really want that. We're not really interested in that. Does that make sense? Now, the, the type of escapism I'm talking about, I keep using examples of social media and things like that. That's not the only kind. Okay, there's lots of ways to escape reality. Some, some people do it through, through busyness. A lot of people do it through busyness. I think once you, you hit the age of, of 30 to 50, maybe 30 to 60, you start really using busyness as a way to escape, okay? 
I'm just so busy. I don't have time to think about the Lord. I don't have time to pray. I don't have time to get in the Word. I don't have time because I'm running kids here and there, or I'm, I'm managing a business, or I'm in charge of employees, or I have all these things that I have to do, and I just, I just don't have time. And what that really is, at the core of it, is you know, I don't want to deal with these weights and truths and realities of God, so I'm going to escape them by busyness. Uh, other people, some people do it maybe like by buying things, constantly thinking about their next purchase, their next hobby, their next event, whatever it is. Uh, for some people, it's just work. They're obsessed with work, and it's an escape. It's a mental escape from having to deal with reality. And whatever the case is, we're really good at finding things, and I could list plenty. But here's the problem, okay? The problem with all this is that we were designed to think. Did you know that? Like, you're not an animal. You were designed by an eternal God and the image of an eternal God. And, and because you were designed by an eternal God, you have eternal longings. So a supernatural creature th- thinks and longs and asks supernatural questions. And, and, and I don't know if you guys know this, but you are an eternal being. God created you with a beginning, but we have an eternity ahead. So because we're created in the image of an eternal God, we are eternal beings, and we ask intrinsically ask eternal questions. We just do. And so when we shut those questions out day after day, and when we shut out truth day after day, and we don't let it sink in to the soil of our hearts, those questions don't go away. They pile up, and they create anxiety, and they create problems that, that manifest themselves in other ways. You can only live a shallow lifestyle for so long before you just crash. If you just completely crash, because you're not dealing with life, you're not handling life, you're not allowing God with His truth to teach you why life is the way it is and how to handle it. You're just shoving it all with mindless stuff every day, every minute, and it piles up. And sin is the purpose of this. If we're eternal beings that want to know the answer to, to, to life's meaning, then why do we stuff it? Because sin, as Romans says, sin causes us to suppress the truth. Because if we can suppress it, then we don't have to answer to it. Does that make sense? If we can ignore it, we don't have to deal with it. If we can forget it, it's not a problem anymore, but it still is. You guys ever watch The Matrix? Yeah? I mean, here's Neo, right? I'm going to sound like such a nerd. Here's Neo, he's just living his life, normal guy, life's good, whatever. One day, all of a sudden, he wakes up and realizes that his whole life was a dream, right? And that he's actually a battery for, for uh, if you haven't seen the movie, this sounds really stupid. Uh, he's, he's actually a battery for robots. <laughs> Write that down. He wakes up, though, and he has to, he has to make a decision, okay? You're going to take the red pill or the blue pill, uh, if you take the red pill, everything goes back to normal. You'll never remember that this even happened. You can go on being a battery and living in a dream world. Or if you take the other pill, you've got to wake up, and you've got to deal with this. And you've got to allow the weight of the reality of life to actually affect you and change the way that you live. And what we're doing by distracting ourselves with mindless things is taking the other pill. It's like, I don't want to deal with life. I don't want to deal with reality. I don't want to deal with what God's asking me to do. I don't want to deal with who God is saying that he is. I don't want to deal with what God is calling me, the way God is calling me to live. So I'm going to keep stuffing that by not facing the reality and just distracting myself. 
We all do it. Meditation is waking up. It's saying, I'm sick of living in a fog. I'm sick of living in a cloud, not knowing why things are the way, not having clarity about who God is and why I'm here and why I was designed. Meditation is saying, I'm not just gonna know the scriptures, I'm just gonna come here on Sunday and hear Jeff teach or, or, or listen to podcast. I'm not just gonna hear the word, but I'm gonna allow that to actually affect me. I'm gonna start believing it. I'm gonna wake up, okay? Uh, in Ephesians chapter uh, five, Paul says this, he says, for anything that becomes visible is light, And then he quotes the Old Testament. He says, therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. This 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 verse is so the epitome of our culture. We are sleeping to the truths and the beauty and the power of God and we've been put to sleep by mindlessness. We've been put to sleep by weightless thoughts that bombard our mind constantly. Things that don't matter that aren't necessarily evil in and of themselves. But God is saying, heritage, wake up and see. Sam, wake up and see that I am God and respond to that. Stop shoving me in the corner and distracting yourself with stupid things. God is calling us to shake the mental dew, the mental dew from our heads and begin to allow the weight of him him and who he is to actually move us to something. That's what meditation is. So let's, let's get in a little bit more. And that's kind of the why, okay? Why is meditation important? Let's, let's look at kind of what it is. What is meditation? First thing that you think of when someone says meditation is Eastern meditation, Eastern religion. Completely different. And the first thing I want to do is clarify how that's different. Eastern meditation, okay? So Buddhism, Hinduism, things like that. Eastern meditation is the process of looking within, okay? Uh, we talked about this last week, so this is a review. Last week, I talked about the fact that, that they believe that, that to find the karmic consciousness, to find transcendence, is to look within yourself, to block out all things exterior and look within. Christianity is completely the opposite. If you ever want to know what Christian meditation is, just look up Eastern meditation and then think of whatever the exact opposite is, okay? We don't look within, we don't internalize. We don't say, I need to find transcendence by looking into my heart. No, we actually look exterior. We look out. We look to see who God is, what he's said through his word. So, so Eastern meditation is the process of looking within. Christian meditation is the process of looking outside ourselves. Here's another way to look at it. Eastern meditation is emptying your mind, whereas Christian meditation is filling your mind. Does that make sense? We're not trying to empty our mind. Our, our minds are empty enough. <laughs> Mine is. We need to fill our mind with good truth because my mind is not naturally wired because of sin to think rightly. So what is Christian meditation? Meditation, if you want to write this down, if you're taking notes, um, you can even just pretend like you are and I'll feel better. Um, meditation. Meditation is the weight and truth of God being imported in such a way that we are changed by it, okay? The truth and the weight of God being imported, not exported, but imported into our hearts in such a way that we are changed by it. Listen, if God changes your heart through the mind, which Romans 12 says that he does, 
Okay? If he gets to your heart through the, con- the conforming of your mind, then meditation is the highway by which God gets to that heart. Okay? It's one thing to know things at a very surface level. Here, here's why that seed analogy scares me, because the seed sprung up, right? And how many Christians in churches are springing up? And like, say, like, I mean, people, at least, I should say, at least people in churches are springing up, hearing the truth and say, hey, that's kind of cool. Hey, that might improve my life. Hey, that might make things better for me. But the problem is, is, is that they're not allowing that truth to actually go any deeper than the surface. And if it doesn't go any deeper than the surface, then your root system doesn't develop. Meditation is saying, I'm not just gonna get a concept from a preacher. I'm not just gonna get something because I've been told it, or a cliche phrase, or a, <clears throat> from a, a, a daily devotional or anything like that. That, that. That's all good. But I want it to be in my heart in a deeper place that actually affects me. I want it to sink down into the deeper parts of my heart. If God's word is the wind, meditation is the sail, okay? If God's word is the wind, meditation is the sail. It's, it's the process by which saying I wanna actually believe this by thinking about it enough for it to change me. God's truth is a Mack truck. Have you, I mean, have you thought about it? Like it's a Mack truck. If you're standing in the road and you get hit by a Mack truck at 70 miles an hour, you will be moved by that truck, right? Come on, this is, this is basic, yeah, right? Not a trick question. If you, if you get hit by a Mack truck at 70 miles, now, if God's truth is a Mack truck, which it is, um, meditation is what happens when you stand in the road. If you're not being affected by God's word, you're not standing in the road. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? If you're not being moved by God's word, it's because you're not allowing the weight of it to actually sit. You're not allowing the truth of it to move you. If it doesn't move you, then you didn't get it. <laughs> you didn't get it. You might understand it and, and nod your head, but you didn't get it. The reason, Thomas Watson says, the reason we come away so cold from the reading of the scriptures is because we do not warm our hands by the fires of meditation. It's allowing a truth to actually sink. It sounds ethereal, but it's not. It sounds hard to grasp, but it's, it's really just the process of saying, I'm not just gonna read it. I'm gonna let it affect me. Here's, here's some, some scripture that might be helpful. Meditation in the scriptures. Psalm 119, verse 97, I'll just read it. The psalmist says, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Now, know this. When the Old Testament <clears throat> psalmists were talking about the law, they weren't talking about these rules. They weren't like, oh, I just love rules. Rules are the greatest you know, thanks for telling me to brush my teeth, Mom. I'm going to meditate on that. Like, that's not what they were saying, okay? What they were saying is that the law of God was the revealing of his nature. When God gave them the law, it was not only to protect them on things like don't eat pork and stuff like that. It was also to reveal himself. This is my character. Don't lie because that's who I am because I'm perfect. Holiness is understood through the law. And so what the psalmist is saying is, I'm gonna meditate on your nature day and night. I'm gonna meditate and think about who you are constantly, all day. Psalm 63, verse six, uh, the psalmist says, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, it's something that's at night, it's something during the day, it's an all day, all the time thing. That doesn't mean you're in a prayer closet all day long, okay, um, don't worry. But that means that, that you're mulling over the truth of who God is. You're just thinking about it. 
Man, what did God say to me this morning in my Bible reading time? Or, or what truth do I know about God? Now, can I actually have the discipline to, while I'm saved, just driving to work, to actually just think about that and, and just allow that to, to affect me and move me and change me? Psalm 119, 148, Psalmist says, My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. For the psalmist, the meditating on the word of God, it, it's food for the soul for them. It's, 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 like, it's like something, you can tell the way they talk about it. It's not just something they do because they're supposed to. It's like nourishing them. It's like they can't live a day without doing it because they're going to starve. Now, we are nourished spiritually by what we choose to dwell on mentally. Did you know that? We choose, we're nourished spiritually by what we choose to dwell on mentally. Here's another interesting thing. Paul Bloom, a Yale professor with a, um, a PhD in cognitive psychology, blah, 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 this stuff. He's, he's smart, whatever. Um, he studies how humans develop the ability to uh, derive pleasure from people, experiences, or things, okay? And he says this. Uh, he was asked, <clears throat> um, he was, hold on. Uh, he's discovered through his research that pleasure, here we go, pleasure does not simply occur, it develops, Okay, so through his research, he's, he's discovered that pleasure doesn't just um, occur, it develops. Here, here's what he says. He says, people ask me, how do you get more pleasure out of life? And he says, my answer is extremely um, pedantic. Study more, he says. The key to enjoying wine isn't just to guzzle a lot of expensive wine, it is to learn about wine. No, now track with me, and I stumbled through that. Track with me here. It, to enjoy wine, I don't like, like wine, but we'll use the example. To enjoy wine isn't just to sit there and drink wine. It's to understand what makes wine special. It's to understand the process of how it was brought about. I'll use coffee. I, I love coffee. I appreciate coffee more. Once, once I, I married my wife and she worked at coffee shops and she explained to me the complexity of coffee and how pulling a shot was hard. That made me enjoy the coffee more. When I get into a hobby, the, the hobby itself isn't always the funnest part. It's more learning about the hobby that makes the actual act of doing it fun. It's part of enjoying things. And what he's saying is, is that we enjoy things more when we actually take the time to think about the thing and understand the beauty of it. This is true for God. This is meditation. This is saying, I'm not just gonna be with God. I'm not just gonna spend time with God, but I wanna know about God. I wanna know all about who he is and what makes him who he is, and I will find pleasure in that. In John 17, 3, Jesus gives this really cool, this really, when he's praying to the Father, he says, eternal life is that we might know God. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible because Jesus gives us like a snapshot into what heaven is. It's not sitting on a cloud with a harp. Heaven is eternal exploration of God. It's forever figuring out the complexity of the God that made all this. And you can imagine that he's pretty intricate. And we could explore him forever, and we will spend forever exploring God. So heaven, if you will, is eternal meditation. If meditation is allowing our eyes and our heart to see as much of God as we possibly can, then that's what heaven is eternally, exploring and being satisfied in the glory of God. When Dietrich Bonhoeffer was asked why he meditated, uh, he replied, because I'm a Christian. Because I'm a Christian. Mean, what, that's what we do as Christians. As Christians, we're not saved into some moralistic club. 
We're not saved into some, uh, you know, this is going to make my life better, self-improvement, self-help club. We are saved into understanding and realizing God. A Christian is created for God, for the purpose of God. We live for God. We live to understand God, to worship God, to know God, for the glory of God. It's all about Him. So to be a Christian is to meditate. Now, if we aren't ever thinking about the Lord, how, sh- how shallow of soil is the seed in? I mean, if we're spending 24 hours a day thinking about everything but God, to ask yourself, what kind of soil do I have in my heart? Because to be a Christian is to meditate on who God is. Just like to be married to my wife is to know her. It's to be with her. It's to love her. To be a Christian is to meditate on God. It's to give our minds over to who he is and to be affected by it. Thomas, or, uh, Richard Baxter said, In meditation, we are growing into what Thomas Akempis calls a familiar friendship with Jesus. We are sinking down into the light and life of Christ and becoming comfortable in that posture. Sinking down into the life of Christ and becoming comfortable in that place where we are known by him and we know him. It's pretty cool. So, how do you do that? All right? That was my big question. I convinced myself to meditate this week. I'm like, yeah, man, this is great. I'm going to meditate and spend time thinking about God. I'm like, how do I do that? Um, and still figuring that out. But I will say I tried this week. I, I tried to just go to a coffee shop, turn my phone off, sit with my Bible open and say, I'm going to read something and just think about it. And it was really hard. I'll be honest. It was really hard. It was really hard. I mean, just a million things coming into my mind. This is a spiritual disciplines series. Discipline is hard. (laughs) It it, it doesn't just happen. And I gotta tell you guys, we do not live in the culture that lends itself to this meditation. We just don't. We live in a culture, as I said, that lends itself to mindlessness and weightless things. And this is not something that is gonna be easy. But I wanna challenge you guys, along with myself, to say, will you try Will you try to take a chunk of time? Maybe it's while you're driving to work. Just start there. Will you try to take a time and say, I'm not gonna turn on the radio, okay? Political news can wait. Sports news can wait, whatever. I'm gonna leave my phone on airplane mode and I'm just gonna think about something about God this morning or in the evening or whatever it is. It sounds hokey, but, but seriously. And, and then I'm gonna allow that to affect me in my life. So here's my three-step program. I'm like the guy that weighs 600 pounds telling you how to lose weight, okay? Here's my three-step program on how to meditate. So take it for what it's worth. Um, <clears throat> number one, make space, okay? This is no nonsense. Make space. Uh, the, the, the reality is what we talked about is, is you'll never be able to focus on God if you don't give him room. If you don't give him room. We, we just did six months of worship nights over at the Hub on Saturdays last year, um, and the whole concept behind those worship nights is to make space for God. As, as funny as that sounds, um, you know, everything that we do typically in a service is so planned out, you know, and it has to be that way. We got kids and classrooms and all this stuff. But what we wanted to do on Saturday nights is we just wanted to say, God, there's no agenda tonight. We're just going to worship you and we're going to make space. Because space and creating room for God to actually work is a lot of times 
when things actually happen. So whatever it takes to make space, I, I really want to just clear my life out of some stuff that doesn't matter. It's not evil stuff. It's just pointless. It's just pointless. I want to get better about just clearing my life out and making space because it's, it's not something you can just nail down. Okay, God, you have an hour. Speak to me right now. Come on, on the clock. You know, it doesn't work like that. Imagine having a relationship like that with your wife. It's date night, but well, we have two kids. Sometimes it feels like it. It's date night. <laughs> Let's have a romantic time. Enjoy each other because, you know, crying's coming. Seriously, it's creating space to, to allow a relationship to happen. So we need to create space. You know, these guys, you read these guys like A.W. Tozer and these, these guys from, from the generation before the generation before, and, and they had this deep well of understanding of who God was, and it didn't come from a YouTube video. It didn't come from Christianity for dummies. It came through hours and hours and hours of seeking God and being in his presence, and they knew God because of that. And we read books by those guys, and say, I want to be like this. What's the five-step program? How do I get there, you know? Give me applicable. You don't need applicable, you need time. You need space. You need to make room for God to actually be with you and to actually think about who he is. So maybe it's creating time. Maybe it's removing distractions. Maybe it's putting the TV in the closet for a month. I don't know. Whatever it takes. Do we create space for the weight of God to affect us? Ask yourself this question. If God was speaking or trying to speak to you right now, would you hear him? Would you, would you hear it? I, have we filled our lives so full of distractions that if God was trying to get your attention, you would not know it? I, I, that question kind of stumped me today. How much time do I actually meditate on God's truth so that I could actually be changed by it, so that I could actually be challenged by it? Number two, how do you meditate? Filling your mind with truth. Okay, so you don't just make space. You make space, but then you fill your mind with truth. This is the point of Christian meditation. Jesus makes it very clear in his parable, right? The, the, the soil is the space, okay? Make sure that that seed has room, okay? It has space for the seed to have roots. But when that seed has roots, it needs nutrients, we need, as we meditate on God, not only to make space, but we also need to fill our minds with truth, with who God is. Colossians three sixteen, Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. He says, let it dwell in you richly. Let the word of God sit in your heart in a rich way. You guys might have heard this before, but do you, have you ever heard about how a cow eats? It's super interesting. I Googled it today. I was like blown away. A cow has four stomachs. Did you know that? Four stomachs. Sometimes I think I have three. But he has literally has four, four stomachs. Um, and what the cow does is it, it eats grass, chews on it, swallows it into one of the stomachs. The acids start to break it down, barfs it back up, chews on it some more, swallows it, barfs it back up, Chews on it. It does this four, four times. Like it chews on it for hours and hours. A cow will spend eight hours a day chewing the cud. Now, that's not even just counting the other time chewing. You know, that's just chewing the cud, okay? The stuff that he throws back up. 40,000 jaw movements a day. 40,000 jaw movements a day a cow does, okay? What a perfect example. 
Okay, what a perfect example of what we are to do with the word of God. Guys, just be cows. <laughs> just be cows. Be holy cows. No. Um, it's, a, it's a really good example. I mean, it, to think about it. Don't, don't just read your morning t- time in the word and, and, and get a truth and, and say, okay, that's good, and then forget it. I mean, that's what I do. I read something, I'm like, oh, that's really good, and I forget it. It's in a journal somewhere. Take it through your day. Chew on it. Go to work, take your lunch break, chew on it some more, (laughs) okay? Go to work again, get off work, chew on it again. Before you go to bed, chew on it again. Pray through it, think about it. Allow it to to impact you. Allow it to move you, allow it to change you. Move you, did you catch that? That was a cow pun, move move you. Um, Matthew chapter four, Jesus uh, was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. You guys know the story. Jesus is baptized. He's carried into the desert to be tempted. Verse 2, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus was being nourished even after 40 days of no food and no drink. He was being nourished by the word of God. He was thinking about it. Now, Pastor Jeremy pointed this out to me today. I'll credit to you. Uh, It's really interesting that when you look, a lot of scholars believe that when you look at the, the responses that Jesus gave to the attacks of Satan during this time, they all come from the same little section in the Old Testament. It's almost as though Jesus was actually reading the scriptures and meditating on an area of the scriptures. And that was what equipped him to be tempted in the desert by Satan. It equipped him. It fueled him. He was ready because he'd been thinking about the truth of God. And every one of his responses was from the truth and the word of God. Super interesting. Now here's what meditation isn't, okay? Just just to clarify really quick. Meditation isn't just filling your mind with whatever warm and fuzzy thing you want to think about. Okay, oh, I just feel like God just, you know, is like a garden hose and, you know, uh, that's not meditation. Okay, meditation is saying, what is, what do I know about God? What do I know about his nature and what he said about himself? Think about that. Don't think about what you want God to be. Don't think about what you feel like God should be. Think about what God says God is. That is meditation, okay? Because you can get really off track, really fast. Jesus wasn't able to withstand the temptation because he had some warm, fuzzy feelings about God when he was 40 days hungry. He was able to withstand that temptation because he knew that he knew that he knew that God was in control and that he hit him on this trajectory to get to the cross for a greater good because he had been meditating on the goodness and the power of God. Okay, it's important. And lastly, step number three, let the truth move you. Let it move you, okay? So don't just make space, don't just fill your mind, but part of meditation is obedience. If it doesn't bring obedience, then the truth hasn't affected you. This is where you allow the weight of his truth to actually push you forward. Richard Foster, which by the way, if you wanna read a book, Celebration of Disciplines, he has a chapter on meditation in there. Um, He says, we cannot burn, listen to this, this is money, We cannot burn the eternal flame of the inner sanctuary and remain the same. For the divine fire will consume everything that is impure. Can I read that again? Because it probably just... 
Um, I had to read it four or five times. We cannot burn the eternal flame of the inner sanctuary and remain the same, for the divine fire will consume everything that is impure. In other words, if you let God into the deep parts of your heart, he's gonna do work. Now, don't get scared by that because he's perfect and he's loving and he's patient and he's gracious and he's kind and he's a good father. But what meditation is is saying, God, I'm sick of leaving you here. I want you to be here. I want you to hit me and the deep parts of who I am. I want your roots to sink deep into the soil of my heart and I wanna be changed and moved and affected by you and by who you are. I wanna respond to that. Well, let me ask you this question. What would our lives look like if we really believed what we say we believe? That seems like a funny question, but I, I had that question asked to me one time and it really stopped me in my tracks. What would my life look like if I really believed what I say I believe? Here's another one. What would our lives look like if the truth of the gospel really sank in? In other words, if I really believe that God sent his only son to pay for my sin to take the wrath of God on himself that I deserved, what would my life look like if I really believed that? And lastly, what would our lives look like if we filled our minds constantly with the reality of God's kingdom? How different would my choices look? How different would my lifestyle look if I really allowed the truth of God to sit in my heart and in my mind? Because I don't want to be shallow soil. I don't. I don't want to look like, oh, look, Sam sprung up. Oh, look, he loves Jesus. In reality, I'm keeping him at surface level, not letting him get into the deep parts of my heart. I don't want that. When I, when I, was, uh, when I was 16 and I, and I first got saved, um, I had a prophecy prophesied over me and at, a, at a Pentecostal camp, which freaked me out because I was grown, like raised super conservative. Um, but this woman, that, that uh, this older woman that was... Um, sort of mentored even to us and was walking us through a college class and she just prophesied over me and she, she just said that, that God is going to turn you into a deep well, that, that, that uh, you can reach deep into who God is and pull buckets for people and I was just like, okay. But I went home and I thought about that and I was like, man, Lord, may that be true? And it's not, it's, it's, I'm not there yet, guys but may that be true for all of us? May we say, God, I wanna be a deep well, a well that, that can pull buckets of living water for people, not shallow, meaningless, catchphrases of Christianity, not quoting verses that mean nothing to us, but we read them on a mug, but truth that we've chewed on, truth that we've believed, truth that we've meditated on. So when you go f visit your friend in the hospital, you're not pulling something out of a surface pool. You're, deep in, you're digging deep into the well of your heart where God has put living water, and you're pulling that out, and it means something. So when the sun comes, and the suffering comes, and the temptation comes, and the struggle comes, and life happens, you have depth to pull from, and your, your roots sink so far down that you cannot be uprooted. That's the walk with God that I want. That's the walk with God that we need to be disciplined to achieve. Amen? Cool. Let's pray, guys, and stand up.